recently and bought something by weight, in other words, you tell, you tell the clerk or cashier or whatever that you want a pound of this or two pounds of that, that's not so common anymore. You know, it used to be that everything was pretty much sold that way. Now most everything we buy is prepackaged, and so it doesn't have to be weighed out. But if you do go someplace where you're buying something by weight, maybe you go to the deli counter at the grocery store and say, I want a pound of that ham, that sliced ham. When they weigh it out, they put on a neat digital scale and the, and it just reads out the weight in precise amounts, you know, and the, the digit, the electronic digits show up on the screen and you know how much you're getting. That's the way we buy things by weight these days. But that wasn't always the case. That's a new invention, of course. For centuries, the way things were sold by weight was on a balance scale. And the way a balance scale works, very simply, as you well know, is that you take a, a weight that you know how much it weighs. It's already predetermined. May, I want to buy a pound of something, so I take the pound weight and I put it on this side of the balance scale. And, of course, it drops down. And then I start putting on the other side what I want to buy until the balance scale balances out and it's right in the middle. And that way I know that this that I want to buy weighs a pound because it has counterbalanced that one pound weight, weighed by balance. That's the way it was done for centuries. The Bible speaks of such things lots of times, especially in the Old Testament. Things weighed in balances. We want to study about one of those instances where a reference to that sort of thing is made in our study this morning. So think about things weighed in balances, and we'll consider that in our lesson. Before we get to that, we stop for just a minute to say thanks to everybody for being here on this beautiful Lord's Day in Middle Tennessee. Winter has sort of returned. It's a little bit cooler than normal, but no worse than you'd expect for this time of year. And we are blessed to be able to come together to worship God. We thank you, especially thanking our visitors for coming. We're glad that we have this opportunity to be together. As we study along together this morning from the Word of God, listen carefully to make sure everything we say is accurate and true to the Word. We don't want to pervert the Scriptures in any way. Make sure we are not doing that. If you see any problem, if you have any question, maybe even if you possibly disagree, that's fine. Please say so afterwards and we'll get our Bibles out and, and make sure we're getting it right from the Word of God. Thanks again for being here this morning. The episode that I want to talk with you about comes from the story of, in, in the book of Daniel, about a man named Belshazzar. Belshazzar was a descendant of the famous Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And if we're able to put the genealogies together accurately, Belshazzar was a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. The text actually calls Nebuchadnezzar his father. That was somewhat common in those times talking about a previous ancestor. Maybe we would only use the word father to refer to our immediate predecessor. But in those cases, they often called uh, maybe a grandfather or a great-grandfather their father. We think in this case that Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. In his days, Babylon had become very wicked and corrupt, and, and a punishment was going to be sent upon them from God. Belshazzar, though, thought that he was safe from any attacking enemy. The city of Babylon was a heavily fortified city. 
The ancient historian Herodotus said that the walls of Babylon, get this, the walls of Babylon were 300 feet tall and 75 feet thick. That's almost hard to imagine, isn't it? Walls that big and thick, and it may, that may have been somewhat of an exaggeration, but at the very least, Babylon was a highly fortified city. In Daniel chapter 5, we read about the city apparently under siege. The, the Medo-Persian army had surrounded Babylon and had besieged it, but Belshazzar didn't care. He was inside. He thought he was safe. No threat to him. And he actually held a big feast, a big drunken party is what he conducted. And in fact, to make things even worse, he called out the special vessels, the gold vessels that had been looted from the temple in Jerusalem. When the Babylonians took Judah captive and they looted everything and took all the precious things that they get their hands on, they took the special sacred vessels out of the temple in Jerusalem. And Belshazzar had those brought out. And they were drinking their wine, getting drunk, drinking from the special vessels that had been looted from Jerusalem. And in the course of that, a vision appeared. A hand writing on the wall. And a message was scrawled out there, but Belshazzar, none of the others who were there, they couldn't make out the meaning of what that was. You know, even today we have a saying, the handwriting on the wall. I saw the handwriting on the wall, we might say. And that's just a figure of speech to us. And by that we mean we saw how this was going to turn out. We saw the future. We saw some indication of how this was going to play out. It comes from this story, the handwriting on the wall. But in this case, when the, this wasn't, this wasn't just a, a figure of speech. This was something that they actually saw and wondered, what could it mean? It was suggested that Daniel, Daniel who now was an older man, still a statesman in Babylon, but an older man at this point, he, he had been taken captive to Babylon from Judah when he was just a teenager. But now he's an older man, but he has shown himself to be not only faithful God, but also a very effective statesman in Babylon. And he is called for to see if he could tell the meaning. Read with me in Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, beginning of verse 22. Daniel 5, verse 22. Thou, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords and thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them. And thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold and brass and iron and wood and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose all thy ways are, thou hast not glorified. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. So now Daniel's going to tell him what it means. This is the writing that was written. Many, many, tickle eupharsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Many, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tickle, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So that was the meaning of the handwriting on the wall. They couldn't make it out. They didn't know. But when Daniel came, he gave them the accurate meaning 
And verse 30 of the chapter says, In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. So, the message to Belshazzar was that he was not going to remain king. But especially notice the expression that he had been weighed in the balances, weighed in the balances and found wanting. That's what we want to build our lesson about today. That's an interesting historical, real historical event that occurred so long ago. But we want to just snatch from that story this idea of being weighed in the balances. Weighed in the balances, that's the idea of judgment, of being compared to something. Like a balance scale compares what you're buying to what a known weight is. Here, the the balance scale judges Belshazzar against what's right and proper. He's weighed against what's right and proper. He's found wanting. That sort of judgment uh, is something that we're all going to be subject to. And that's where we want to make our application this morning. Our application is about the idea that God judges and God will judge and he will judge us all. We will be weighed in the balances. The first point that I'd like to make from that is simply that observation that there will be a judgment. The vast majority of people live their lives day by day without any apparent regard to the idea that there is a coming judgment. We have an expression that we use, the the only things certain are death and taxes. We're coming into the new tax year now, and so you'll hear that probably. Someone will say the only certain things in life are death and taxes. Actually, that's not completely accurate. Uh, The tax part could come or go. Death is a reality. What is certain in life is death and judgment. The only things certain in this life are death and judgment. That would be more accurate. But men have always denied the notion of judgment. In the text that Damon read for us earlier from 2 Peter 3, beginning verse 3, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? They deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through water, out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In this part of that text, Peter is talking about the flood in the days of Noah, right? And so to scoffers who say, where is the promise of his coming? Peter says they ought to, although they deliberately overlook this, they ought to remember that God once judged the world in the days of Noah by sending the worldwide flood. It was an incredible thing. God had that power to judge the world with that flood. He says the the same word of God, by the same word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up being kept until what? The day of judgment, the destruction of the ungodly. So the point of this is the same God who judged the world in the days of Noah and who had such power to do that. That's the God we will face in judgment. That's the God that will judge us. God is waiting to judge us. And and this whole physical universe is preserved until that time. And so we need to think about that. We need to think about the reality, there is a coming judgment. The timing of it, though, is uncertain. 
We cannot say for sure. I'm, I'm convinced that that's by God's design, that he didn't tell us the exact time of judgment. Because if he told us the exact time, then we'd have good reason to just put off and procrastinate our preparation for such time. When you school kids probably are experiencing this very sort of thing now, as all of us did when we were in, in our school days, you got you got a big assignment. A, we used to call them. I don't know if you guys still call them that. We you got a term paper, and that means this is the big assignment this semester in this particular class. You've got to research some subject, and you you got to write along paper about it, a term paper, we used to call it. It is the big deal this term. But the semester just started. And we've been given the assignment, but it's it's like three months from now before it's due. I'm not even thinking about that. And so two months from the assigned date of the term, I'm still not thinking about it. It's not even on my radar screen. I'm not considering one month now until it's due. I still haven't given any thought to it at all. A week! It's due in a week! Yeah. What do you do with the term paper? You usually end up writing it the night before it's due, right? It's due tomorrow! <laughs> i got to get it done. We put off, we procrastinate. And think about that with judgment. If we knew when judgment was coming, don't you think it would be absolutely in our nature to, to postpone and, and procrastinate about making any preparation for it? Maybe that's why God never stated when it would come, because he knew our nature. The fact of the matter is we do not know when judgment will come. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men that he raised him from the dead. I want to draw your attention to the idea that he has appointed a day. I want to suggest to you that this is this is sort of a... I don't know if this is accurate terminology, by the way. But I would just say it this way. That God has scheduled judgment. God knows. God knows when it will come. Uh, I don't suppose that God keeps an appointment calendar. But if He did, I think it's on His calendar. I think He knows when the judgment will come. But the fact of the matter is that nobody else knows. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 36, Of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Uh, and, and the fact is then that no one knows and no one can predict. There have been plenty of people who tried to do it through the centuries, predict the final coming, the end of the world, final judgment. But nobody's done it accurately because nobody knows. Now, that being the case, what do you do? I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. What do you do? Judgment's coming, but you don't know when. What do you do? Well, good sense says that you have to then be always ready. No procrastination. No putting it off and waiting because the time is uncertain. We know that when judgment comes, Jesus will be the judge. That's important to know. Who is the judge in this matter? Jesus will be the judge. We should contrast that with courts of men. Uh, in courts of men, what you hope for is fairness and justice. You want an honest judge to judge a case if you have to go to trial. And I suppose that in most instances that's the case, but not always, because we've known of judges, haven't we, who have taken a bribe or who have been deceived or uh, who themselves have been deceptive 
And so, in some instances, in human courts, the judge is not all that, right? The judge is not good. But in this case, we have a completely righteous and just judge who can't be bribed and who can't be tricked or deceived. We have a perfect judge. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. Jesus will be the judge. We'll stand before him. And of course, Jesus has experienced our human existence. He came and lived here on earth, lived among men, lived as a man. And he knows what we're dealing with. We won't be able to say, therefore, in the judgment, well, if you want, Jesus, if you only knew what I had to put up with, if you only knew the things that I had to deal with, we won't be able to say that to him, right? Because he has experienced our human experience. And he does know. And he will be the perfect judge. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Paul was given Timothy special instructions in his preaching work. But we just use this verse to point out that he spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and dead. Quick and dead, those who are still living and those who've died. And so you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If you're still living, you'll stand before Him. If you've already died when He comes, you'll stand before Him. He's going to judge the living and the dead, the quick and dead, at His appearing and His kingdom. So yes, judgment is certain. Don't know the time, but we know who the judge is. And we also know that every single person will be judged by him. You know, we could acknowledge these first points about judgment and uncertain time and Jesus as the judge. Uh, but maybe I think that I won't be included in that. It says all will be judged. But my idea is that I might be able to get out of that. I might be able to sneak out. I might be able to hide. I might, in, in some way or another, I might be able to avoid this judgment that is coming. Nope. That's not going to happen. All will be judged by Him. In Jude, of course, just one chapter in Jude, but at verse 6 it says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He had kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Wait a minute, the angels are going to be judged. Even the angels are going to be judged. He goes on and says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Again, the emphasis is on everybody's going to experience that judgment. Even the angels, all will be judged. And I am not going to be able to skip out on that. In Romans chapter 14, verse 10, beginning, We shall all, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. All right. Everybody's going to be judged. But what is the standard anyway? Well, the scriptures themselves, God's word, will be the standard by which we are judged. One of our standard excuses that we like to offer is, oh, I'm, I didn't know, I didn't know. 
So I get pulled over by a police officer doing 50 miles an hour, but it's actually a 30 mile per hour zone. Well, I might actually say, I'm sorry, I didn't know that that was the speed limit here. Usually, it won't even work with a police officer on a speeding ticket, right? The excuse, I didn't know. Occasionally, you might get away with that by saying, I didn't know. But usually, that won't work. It definitely won't work in the case of judgment by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we've been told in advance how and by what standard we will be judged. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, beginning of verse 10... John says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before the throne, and the books were open. Now, that's talking about judgment, right? I, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before the throne, the books were open. That's talking about judgment, right? For surely that's judgment. So it says books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So some books are going to be open. What do you suppose those books that are going to be open, what will those be? Well, I think clearly the books opened will include the books of instruction from God, right? The commandments of God that pertain to us. The things that we've been told to do. The things we've been told not to do. The books that expose God's law will be open. They will be the standard. I think the other books opened uh, will be the books in which apparently our deeds are recorded. Notice the books that will be judged by the things written in the book according to what they had done. And so there's a record being kept of what we do and what we don't do. The things that we've done in our lives. So books were opened and the dead were judged out of the books. So here's the book. Of, here's the book of God's instruction. That book is going to be opened. And then there's another book uh, that has written in it how I live my life and what I did. So I'm going to, my deeds are going to be compared to this standard. That's pretty clear how we're going to be judged. But notice, anyone's name not found in the book of life, thrown into the lake of fire. So there was this, one of the books open was the book of life. And if your name's not in the book of life, forget it. You're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. What's that book of life anyway? Let me show you another place where it's referenced several places in the New Testament. But here's another place. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, beginning, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, notice, whose names are in the book of life. Who's in the book of life? Well, they are faithful Christians who serve God, right? And Paul names some here who had worked with him and helped him in his work of spreading the gospel. And he says their names are in the book of life. And so the book of life is that book that records the names of those who have submitted to God's will, who have obediently obeyed that simple gospel plan of salvation, who have been forgiven of past sins, who have been brought into a right relationship with God, who are part of His body, the church. Those are the names in the book of life. Is your name in the book of life? I want you to go back now to Revelation 20, verse 12. 
anyone's name that was not found written in the book of life. He's thrown in the lake of fire. If you're not in the book of life, nothing else matters. You're not going to heaven. You're going to be lost eternally in hell, right? But know that there's going to be a judgment. These books that are going to be open, uh, they're going to, they're going to compare what we have done. Are you ready for that? Again, I want to point out to you, you're not going to be able to use the excuse, I didn't know. I was unaware. Nobody told me. No, you know. You have the chance to have full knowledge of the standard by which you will be judged. Jesus said very simply in John chapter 12, verse 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. So we know the standard that will be applied. Finally, let me suggest to you that eternity in heaven or hell will be the outcome. This is why this is so absolutely important. In fact of matter, nothing else is of significance at all. Nothing else in life compares to this final judgment and our preparation for it. The outcome is going to be permanent. It's going to last forever. Eternity, which I think is a concept hard for us to grasp, something that never will, an ongoing thing without end, an existence that doesn't have a, a final point. Eternity. And your eternity is either going to be in heaven or in hell. It's really all that matters. In Matthew chapter 25, beginning verse 31, and we won't read all of this text, I've just picked out parts of it, but this is clearly Jesus describing that judgment day scene. In Matthew 25, beginning verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory and before Him shall be gathered all nations. And He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then shall he say also to them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous to life eternal. There it is, right? Notice, everlasting punishment. There are some people who say that those who are not found faithful to God will just be annihilated or wiped out. They'll cease to exist. That's not what this says. This says that they will go away into everlasting punishment. The righteous will go to life eternal. What's interesting here is this word and this word are the same in the original language. However long heaven will be. And everybody believes heaven will last forever, right? However long heaven will be is how long the punishment will be in hell. And so eternity is in the balance, either heaven or hell. Are you ready? Are you ready for judgment? Do you realize that you will be weighed in the balances? That famous expression comes from Daniel chapter 5 where we read earlier. Daniel chapter 5 where Belshazzar uh, was weighed in the balances and found wanting. You're going to be weighed in the balances. How will you be found? Judgment is coming. We simply ask, are you ready? If we can help you in preparation for that, whether it be by your initial obedience to the gospel, 
that plan of salvation, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you need our help in that, if you need more study and information to make that choice, we'd be anxious to help you. If you're a Christian already, but you've not been faithful to the Lord, come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.